Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. As we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah together, the walls of Jerusalem have now been rebuilt. We saw in chapter 6 that the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elal in 52 days. So this work of God has now come to completion as far as Nehemiah himself answering God's calling to return back to Jerusalem, which was in great distress and difficulty because the walls were broken down there. The gates had been burned with fire. And though the temple had been rebuilt and a remnant had returned back and were worshiping God once again, the city was in great distress and kind of in its ruined condition still. So Nehemiah answered God's call, went back, and with great determination rallied the people of God as an appointed leader of the Lord with God's anointing upon him, the good hand of the Lord being upon him. Nehemiah casted vision and rallied the people together in a cooperative effort. They had a mind to work, and they persevered through opposition, difficulty. They kept carrying on, though they were dealing with resistance and ultimately were able to accomplish in less than two months this incredible project of restoring and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem there. Uh, Yet nonetheless, I think the people recognized that their greatest safety certainly wasn't just in having physical walls up, which would be a boundary to protect them from enemy invaders and to keep the people safe inwardly so that the worship life and the moral life of the people could be preserved. And to some degree, that was important. And certainly those walls served a great purpose to protect the worship lives of God's people. But uh, the greater safety that they needed was that their lives were within the boundaries of the Word of God itself. Uh, And God's Word gives great boundaries to our lives and helps us stay within God's will and the parameters of what God wants for our life. And so it's very interesting to see now as we come to chapter 8 at this point, the walls having been rebuilt, uh, that now we see a real uh, revival of the Spirit, it seems, directly connected to a resurgence of the people's hearts in their connection to the Word of God itself and the the truths of God's Word being the boundaries for God's people and the basis of how they would live and conduct themselves. And just a great chapter, a beautiful picture in some ways, I think, of sort of a spontaneous revival of the Spirit that takes place here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we notice it's directly connected to the Word of God because whenever there is a work of revival, there's always a direct connection to the Word of God in the midst of those spiritual outbreaks when they take place. So as we come to the end of chapter 7, we saw last time that the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers and singers, some of the people, it says, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And the last verse of chapter 7, verse 73 says, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So Take notice, we're at the seventh month at this point, and that was a very important month for the Jewish people. The seventh month was a very sacred month for them as far as on their religious calendar. Many things happened during the seventh month. The Feast of Trumpets, which was one of the sacred religious assemblies that the children of Israel would observe. During the seventh month on their calendar, also on the tenth day of that month, was also the celebration of the Day of Atonement. And this was that one high holy day in the Jewish religious calendar where they uh, 
commemorated the power of God's forgiveness for the sins of the nation. It was that one day in the year when the high priest, the designated spiritual leader among them, was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwelt among the temple, and would go in with the blood of the sacrifice and apply it there upon the mercy seat uh, at the ark to make atonement for the sins of the people of the nation. So uh, that happened uh, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we often refer to it as. And then, of course, during the seventh month also was the celebration of tabernacles, another one of the feasts that Israel celebrated and one of the three mandatory feasts that all Jewish males were required to participate in. Remember, there were more feasts, but three were mandatory observances for Jewish males, uh, and that was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And we'll see that it's during this chapter that they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles once again as well. So a very unique month uh, when a lot of focus was upon the Lord, when the people's hearts were more inclined to be thinking about God and God's role in their life as people, that there's this great outbreak now of a move of God's Spirit that awakens the hearts of God's people spiritually. Notice chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, Now all the people, it says, were gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. Now this speaks of how the people came from their cities. Again, chapter 7, verse 73 says they were all dwelling in their cities in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple was. It was where the walls were built, but many of the people lived in communities and areas outside of the city of Jerusalem as far as their residents. But they've now converged upon Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of people of the remnant Jews who had gone back to rebuild the temple and go back to their homeland. It says they now converge as one man in the open square in front of the water gate. Now, this pictures them being in Jerusalem there, and notice they come together, it seems, in clear unity. It says they gather as one man, and uh, again, as I read that, this unified gathering of the people for a time of seeking God and worship is going to see here. Remember, the Bible tells us in Psalm 133 how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity, and it says in that very verse that there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. And there's something about God seeing his people come together in a unified way, as one mind, as one heart, coming together in one accord. Remember in uh, the New Testament, we see there in, in the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2, that when all the people, it says the, the believers, after Jesus ascended, they were assembled together, and they were gathered together praying in one accord in that upper room, in, in unison, seeking God in prayer together. That was when the Holy Spirit was powerfully poured out at Pentecost, at the birth of the church in the New Testament. So there's something about the Lord's people coming together in unison, in agreement, seeking God, wanting to see God move, wanting to be open to what God would have for them. And I think certainly we would be wise to continue to position ourselves in that same way, coming together in unison to seek the Lord. So here they were together as one in Jerusalem during this seventh month. And notice what happens, chapter 8, verse 1, very beautiful. Notice it says, They told Ezra the scribe, that is the people, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded 
Israel. Now, notice what's happening here. This is not particularly, it seems, Nehemiah, who was the governor of the people. He was kind of the one who led the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He's been providing a great amount of leadership as a governor, certainly a great man of God, uh, but also a government official. Actually, the governor of Jerusalem he was serving as. It doesn't seem that Ezra even per se, is the one initiating what we're going to see going on here, but it actually was a request of the people, the actual people themselves. There is a a sovereign move of God's Spirit that stirs the hearts of the Jews, of God's people, which causes them, it says, to tell Ezra, it almost seems like they're requesting or asking Ezra the scribe, to bring forth the book of the law of Moses. That would be the probably a reference to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to bring this forth that they might hear from the word of God what God has spoken and commanded for the lives of his people. Now, uh, very beautiful to see the hunger that the people of God have for the word of God. And just such a beautiful thing to see. You know something special is happening by God's Spirit when it's not necessarily the leader having to encourage and direct the people towards the things of the Lord or encouraging them to get into the Word of God or to gather for the teaching of the Word of God or for times of worship. Certainly that should happen as well. But something really wonderful is beginning to happen when God's people are the ones hungering and thirsting after righteousness, longing for what the Word of God would say and wanting to learn the Scriptures and wanting to gather for worship because they're inspired to do such and actually asking and encouraging the spiritual leaders to teach them and explain these things to them. Now, interesting, take notice, we now come back to this man, Ezra. The book of Nehemiah is greatly focused upon Nehemiah himself, who was the one who went back to restore and uh, rebuild the walls. But remember, Ezra, the prior book we studied, uh, was the one who was the spiritual leader. He was a scribe and a priest, someone who wrote out handwritten copies of the Word of God, a priest, a teacher of the Word of God, this great man of God who, in the book of Ezra, led great amount of spiritual revival and renewal many, many decades prior to the time even when Nehemiah came on the scene. If I can refresh your memory, Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra, chapter 7, tells us this about Ezra specifically. It says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. So this was sort of the life habit of Ezra, this great man of God, this very influential spiritual leader who came among the people of Jerusalem in his day, who is still there present at this time of Nehemiah and ministering. And again, this man who had this life habit of studying the Word of God himself. He was a lover of the Word of God. He studied it, read it. He knew God's Word for himself personally. He had a hunger to understand the Scriptures. He had prepared his heart to seek God's law personally. And that was his life ambition to know the word of God personally, that it would be ingrained in his life. But also he was someone who was obedient to the word of God. He didn't just study it for academic purposes. It wasn't just about intellectual understanding of the scripture himself or having a great knowledge of the scripture, wonderful as that is. But he was someone who had a heart to seek the word of God 
that he might understand how to live according to the word of God. He not only learned the scripture, but he lived out the scripture in a very dedicated way in his own personal life. It says he sought the law of the Lord and also to do it. That is, he let the scripture be so ingrained in his being that it literally was so much a part of the fiber work of his life that it governed his heart, his decisions, his attitudes, what he would submit to, what he would choose to observe, or what he would refrain from doing. The word of God had a governing power in his life as a man personally. And when someone is living like that, those are the type of individuals that God can powerfully use to then teach and explain the word of God to other people. It says, and he also, after seeking the law of the Lord and obeying it personally, he taught such statutes and ordinances to Israel because he taught with credibility. There was a very strong impact when someone like that who knows the word, who lives the word, then is explaining those truths of Scripture and the Word of God to other people is very impactful, and they can be used with a, a great measure of effectiveness. And this is who Ezra was, and still at this point, again, many, many years, this man has had a faithful ministry as a spiritual leader and someone very influential teaching the Word of God. What a wonderful thing. It has literally been decades since the book of Ezra, where we are now here in Nehemiah chapter 8. He's still in Jerusalem and he's still faithfully doing the same thing. Like that Energizer bunny that just kept going and going and going year after year, he kept just teaching the word of God to the people, continuing to lead people in the ways of the Lord by directing them back to God and ultimately directing them back to the word of God, which is the greatest way to know what God wants. So they go to Ezra and they say, please, we're here. They ask him, it says there, verse 1, Please bring out the book of the law of Moses. Bring out the Bible. Open up the Bible to us and bring it out. In verse 2, Ezra the priest, no greater sound that a Bible teacher wants to hear than people saying, please teach us the Bible. So Ezra the priest, it says, gladly consented. He brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So more than happy to comply, Ezra brings out the word of God to the people. And notice the Holy Spirit informs us who's assembled here. He's going to start then reading and teaching, as we'll see in the chapter, the word of God to the people. It says there, verse 2, the Holy Spirit takes note that assembled that day was men, women, and also we see this distinction, and all who could hear with understanding. That is, all who were able to comprehend with a level of reasoning at this point in time in their life the things that the law of Moses stated and what Ezra was going to explain to them among the adult men and women that were assembled. So again, uh, all who could hear with understanding, perhaps to some degree giving an indication that uh, children, maybe teenagers, that those who were at an age where their reasoning capacity was able to digest and understand the Word of God in the same way that adult men and adult women could. What exactly age that was, uh, we're not certain, but it is very interesting that the Holy Spirit does draw our attention to this, that there were men, women, and all who were able to hear, but not just hear, but were able to hear with understanding. That is, that they could gain the benefit of what was being taught by Ezra. 
that they could hear and actually comprehend and understand it would be helpful to them personally. And again, as we look at this, I think it's a good reminder to us that God wants us to be able to understand his word. And he wants to be able to meet us in such a way by his Holy Spirit where the word of God becomes clear and understandable to us. You know, I look at verses like this, and to me, these are some of the verses that remind me of the great value of having children's ministry. And actually, when we assemble together, like they were assembled together here as God's people for a time of worship and teaching from the Word of God by the uh, spiritual anointed teachers among them as God's people, uh, that, that the assembly that was hearing Ezra teach were adult men, adult women, and all those who were at an age where they were able to have understanding of what was being taught in the midst of that meeting. Uh, I think there's certainly a great... Uh, wisdom to providing children's ministry in the church as an assembly where we can as well, beyond teaching in the level of understanding and comprehension we do in the sanctuary, also provide age-appropriate teaching to the level of understanding of children who are just as important to the Lord that God wants to understand his word, but the reality being that if they sat in the sanctuary where, in a sense, whatever, you know, 12 years old through up or whatever age of understanding kind of, you know, and it may be different slightly for each person, but in that general range up through adulthood where they can kind of comprehend an adult-level type Bible study with understanding, that if those young children were sitting within the sanctuary, uh, quite honestly, everything that was being said would be would just be difficult for them to understand. They wouldn't grasp a lot of what was being told. It would be difficult to track with and pay attention to what I'm teaching as a pastor at the uh, kind of uh, level of, of explanation that's being brought forth. They would probably be uh, drastically bored. It's probably difficult enough for some of you to stay attentive through a Bible study, let alone a, a five-year-old with a comprehension level of a five-year-old and the energy levels and attention span of a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. And So I, I think for a young child to be forced to have to sit in the sanctuary, you might say, where there's no other ultimatum or option for them and they have to sit in the sanctuary, to some degree it's unfortunate because I think a lot of what's being shared, they really don't understand it. It's probably very difficult and in some ways maybe even a little bit boring if they had to sit in an adult sanctuary. And I think there's great value to providing age-appropriate teachings for children so that they can understand uh, I greatly value and appreciate those who are spiritually anointed and have a heart for for children like Jesus did, who want to meet children where they're at at their level of understanding. Remember, Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me, indicating life kind of comes in stages. And in the same way we teach age appropriately in our school systems and as we educate our children intellectually, I think the same has great value spiritually, that we provide age-appropriate teachings where the same truths of Scripture can be grasped and understood at the level of maybe when somebody's three, four years old, or when they're seven or eight years old, or even nine, ten years old, where it's in a way that it's presented that's a lot more digestible and easier for them to swallow. They can be attentive. Maybe there's some activities and other things that meet them with their attention spans, and we care enough to help them 
to understand God's Word where they're at. So it's an enjoyable experience. Uh, they have a, a good positive uh, memory of what it's like to go to church rather than the drudgery of sitting in a sanctuary maybe and being boring, but they actually value learning at their level and having some fun, maybe an activity, a craft, things that are kind of hands-on. They can grasp what's being taught a little better, and I so greatly appreciate, and let me just say for any who are listening, so much what our children's ministry workers do, preparing and investing in our kids recognizing their level of understanding, uh, and and providing that as an option for them to be able to minister to in that way. I think that really has the heart of the Lord. Remember when they were seeking to bring the children to Jesus, it says the disciples, for some reason, were kind of trying to shoo the, the parents and the children away, and Jesus stopped them and said, let the little children come to me. Jesus wanted the children to be able to come to him, and he, he says he blessed them, he prayed over them. And I think that a wise way of looking at that is children's ministry is a great way to let the children come to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus is a master teacher, I'm sure, spoke in one way to little children, if he spoke of spiritual truths and kingdom principles, rather than the way he may have to gatherings of the adult disciples, because he wanted them to understand. And I think one of the greatest ways we can help children come to Jesus is providing children's ministry, age-appropriate classes. Again, just, I see this is a great biblical encouragement, even in the Word of God here, as they're assembled together, that the Holy Spirit takes note of this for us. So thank you for all of you who do serve in that capacity. God's blessing and using you to do something wonderful, to bless the parents so that they, in an undistracted environment, can be encouraged, and the kids can have a great understanding at their level of God's Word. May the Lord bless you for what you do. So verse 3 then tells us that as they assembled together, that Ezra then began to read from the book of the law in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Now take notice of that. He read the scripture from morning until midday. Uh, Interpretation, probably about five to six hours of duration described there. Perhaps from sun up 6 a.m. till midday till 12 noon however you want to factor that that would equate to about a good six hour span of reading god's word i'm sure there were maybe some breaks here and there but six hours of reading god's word before the men and the women look at verse three again it says again and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law So again, we're told who's assembled, men, women, the Holy Spirit again, and those who could understand and who could, let's put it this way, maybe withstand six hours of Bible reading from passages of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Boy, you want to talk about a people's commitment to the Word of God, a people's hunger for the Word of God, literally hours upon hours of reading forth of the Word of God. And it says, verse 3 as well, notice, the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. That is, it wasn't just the reading of God's Word, it was that the people had an expectancy. There was actually a hunger to want to hear it. There was an attentiveness. They weren't there reluctantly. They weren't there because they felt like, well, it's the right thing to do. We sh-. They were there with eagerness. They told Ezra, bring out the Word of God. Please teach us the Word of God. 
Teach us the Bible. We want to know what God's Word says. We are hungry to understand the Scriptures, and they for six hours listened, and they listened attentively. That is, paying attention with a sense of enthusiasm, leaning in, wanting to hear, not fading out, falling asleep, enduring, or whatever, but actually tuned in, hungry to hear. How beautiful when there's something that happens in the hearts of God's people where there's an attentiveness to God's word, that there's a great thirst and a hunger for what God would say and actually coming to Bible study, gathering at church, and with that attentive, eager, enthusiastic attitude, Lord, we're here and we're expectant. We want to hear. Speak to us, God. We want to be taught the Word of God. What a beautiful thing. You know the Spirit of God is moving when something like that happens. God, give us more of that in this generation. I don't know about six hours of Bible reading, but just the, the heart there is so beautiful to see that taking place. So verse 4 says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood. The idea is he was uh, kind of lifted up in the air, like a stage area, almost kind of how we have here at church, and a, a lot of churches do, kind of lifted up slightly, a little bit higher than the people, not necessarily for anything other, just so that they can have facial recognition. It's much easier to pay attention to somebody when you can see their face and follow along. So he's in a big crowd of people. They put him on a platform of wood, so he's a little higher. Again, keep in mind, no PA system. So uh, for him to be able to have his voice carry and speak in such a way that the people could hear him, thousands of people assembled, he's lifted up a little bit. They can see his face, connect with him, and pay attention a little bit better. So Ezra's standing on the platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him, at his right hand, stood uh, Mathaiah, Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Meshael, or Masaiah, excuse me, and then at his left hand, we're trying to pronounce these, Pedaiah, Mishael, Machiljah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. So 13 men are there next to Ezra, and they're there, we're going to see, to actually be helpful in engaging the people and giving clarity and fuller explanation to what the Word of God says. So they're sort of assistance, if you would. You have Ezra, the, the primary teacher here and leader spiritually, and then you have assistants around him, almost like assistant teachers or assistant pastors or those who can kind of help assist the people to understand the Scripture. Again, it's a large multitude. Verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Take notice, as Ezra gets up before the people at their request, as he opens up the word of God, the Holy Spirit records right here, that as he's opening the scripture in front of them, there is such an awe in the hearts of the people towards God and towards the word of God, who God inspired and gave by his spirit, that it says the people, as the word of God is open, the people stood up in an act of reverence. They stood up as a way of demonstrating their great respect towards God and towards God's word, because they knew what that book was. It was the word of Almighty God. And this shows a beautiful reverence and respect towards God's word that the people stood up when the scripture was opened. Hey, if you've ever wondered why is a 
pastor, I have a heart inclination for us when the Word of God is open and read, at least on our Sunday morning services, to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Wasn't my idea. I'm not that creative. The Word of God here inspired my heart that there's something of great value in this. Because when the people stood up, and they weren't asked to stand up, they stood up, again, as a spontaneous response of respect and reverence. In the same way that, you know, if a dignitary or someone special or important maybe walks in, sometimes people will rise to their feet to show reverence to someone who's important. Uh, And again, if, if we do that for people and we do that for reasons on earth, why would we not do something like that to show reverence and respect towards God or towards what God wants to say? And when we open the Word of God, we believe God himself is going to speak, that this is God's spoken word, his spoken message to us. And I love this beautiful image of respect shown towards the Word of God. As you think of people standing up, the idea is like standing up at attention, just like when you're commanding officer walks in and you stand up at attention for the general or the lieutenant, you're standing up at attention to show respect and submission and reverence, and we are ready to receive our orders from our commanding officer. Well, that's kind of the same way with God's word, to have that heart, something beautiful in doing that and just showing that respect, standing up, here we are, Lord, we're attentive, we're ready to hear your word, to see what you would speak to us, and we respect the authority and truth of your word. And there's something about that that just does something beautiful, I think, in the hearts and minds of God's people as we maintain that perspective. So the people now stand as the word of God is opened. And Ezra, verse 6, when he saw this, it touched his heart. As a man who loved God's word himself, he blessed the Lord, the great God. Just, God, how awesome. These people want to hear the word of God. They told me to bring it out. God, as I open the scripture... I bless you, the hearts of these people. They just stood for you, God. They just stood for your word. These people are attentive. They want to hear. And and this just blessed his heart. So he blessed the Lord. He was thanking God, the great God, for what he was doing in this move of his spirit in the hearts of the people. And it says, as he began to bless the Lord as their leader, then all the people, notice, all the people, it says, answered, amen, amen. The idea is, so be it. Or let it be so. We stand in agreement. He is the great God, and we want to hear the things that he wants to speak to us. And they did this, it says, verse 6, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So again, notice the, the worshipful attitude towards God. It says, as they did this, they lifted up their hands. Again, we see all throughout the Scripture either a reference to the lifting of hands in worship, or even at times instruction to do it in the Psalms and other places, lifting up our hands to the Lord. And what is lifting of our hands? Well, culturally, lifting of the hands is a universal sign of surrender. You know, someone uh, comes up to you, a person in authority, a police officer, they pull out their weapon or you're doing something, you lift up your hands. That's a universal sign. We surrender. And that's kind of the idea of lifting our hands is, God, we surrender. We just surrender to your authority over us. We want you to be in control. We want you to take control. The idea as well is, Lord, our hand, we're empty-handed. We have nothing in our hands. We're fully dependent upon you. And, God, we're lifting our hands as an attitude of, of you are greater than us. In the same way we might, again, indicate that by submission to an authority, a police officer, you have greater authority. God, we're lifting our hands because you are greater than us, and we yield to you. 
And this is why the Bible encourages us to do that. It's something good for the heart when we can have the humility to be able to do that, to be able to lift our hands to God in submission and surrender and dependence in the midst of our worship, a biblical thing and something really special. I think happens when we can humble ourselves to come to the place to be able to do that, not caring what other people are thinking about us or being too vain or proud of what someone might think, but just reverently lifting our hands to God and, and just yielding ourselves to Him. Again, I think of, you know, we watch sports games, of course, not much now with the pandemic going on. All the professional sports have been kind of closed down. But think of watching a basketball game, a you know, football game, or whatever sport. And when somebody does a great job, what do people do? A touchdown or some incredible play for your team that you're excited about. People raise their voices and they throw their hands up. Yes! And just kind of that, it's just a spontaneous thing. And it's amazing that we are not too vain or too ashamed to do that for our favorite team or a great play on a sports field or something like that or to go to a concert and to get excited and lift. But yet, sadly, sometimes we're not willing to do the same for God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our soul, the greatest one who deserves more glory and celebration and adoration than anybody. So the people lifting up their hands and bowing their heads, worshiping the Lord in reverence with their faces to the ground, enthusiasm, submission, just reverent worship towards the Lord. And verse 7 says also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, and these other names we're not going to struggle through, it says, the Levites, verse 7, notice, these Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So the Levites were there, the Again, the, the the spiritual workers that were appointed by God from the tribe of Levi, and they're there helping the people to actually understand the Scripture through further explanation, dialogue, conversations. Look at verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the meaning. So take notice what happens here. They're hearing the word of God read, and then it seems beyond Ezra, maybe giving some explanation, or that there's a group of spiritually gifted individuals as well who are competent in the word of God. They understand it. They're able to teach and explain the scriptures as well, and to help people to grasp the truths of God's word, what passages mean what some of the principles indicate, how it might be applied in their lives. It says they were helping the people to understand, verse 7, the Word of God. What a beautiful thing, how God can use those things to happen. You may have the kind of the corporate setting of from a, 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 a Sunday or a Wednesday night kind of corporate gathering when the church comes together and there's the teaching from the pulpit, but then there's also conversations afterwards where people can further talk about the Word of God. There's small group Bible studies and men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and you know youth Bible studies and other ways that people can help people to understand the Word of God beyond just kind of that from-the-platform pulpit teaching. It has its place, and it's important, but that the teaching and explanation to help people understand God's Word can go way beyond that, and God can use others to do that. And I think the more are doing that, the better off. The Word of God spreads, and understanding of it grows, and more people become really rooted 
in the Word of God. I love verse 8 for those who are Bible teachers. If you have a heart to teach the Word of God, probably no greater verse, certainly in the Old Testament, if not in some places in much of the Bible, of just what good Bible teaching should be about. Notice three specific things. Verse 8 says, the Word of God was read, the Word of God was explained, and the Word of God was applied. Three very simple things, but yet crucial to what really good, solid Bible teaching is. It says they read distinctly from the book, the reading of Scripture, the power of just the reading of God's Word. That's what doesn't return void. It's not the commentary on on God's Word or the exposition by the pastors or teachers. It's the Word of God itself that doesn't return void. And just the reading of the truth of the God-inspired power of God's Word itself. They just read the Word of God. This is read distinctly, whether that's a reference to maybe reading it in the language the people understood or reading it with a sense of distinction, maybe emphasizing right words. I, I don't know, but interesting, there was, there was a, a, um, an importance put upon just the reading of the Word, clearly what it said, not just kind of summarizing it or skimming it, but actually reading what the Scripture says, reading it to the people, letting them hear God's Word. And then after the Word of God was read, it says they gave the sense. That is, they they gave explanation in context. What was that referring to? What's being discussed here in this passage? What was the historical setting? Who were the people hearing this? And, and, and how does this align with other principles and truths of God's Word doctrinally? That is, giving adequate explanation of what the text actually means. What's the proper interpretation of that text in its historical context and giving more light and clarity in that sense so that it is properly interpreted and not misinterpreted in regards to what the passage is actually saying or what it's not saying and so forth. So they they gave explanation, interpretation. And then it says after they gave the sense of the passage to the people, they then helped them to understand the reading. The idea is to sort of then comprehend it in their own personal life, the the application of the truth, explaining this is what the passage means, this is what the the, the scriptures are saying here, and, and then helping them understand the meaning. This is so that you might understand how does that apply to your life personally? How can you take that and, and make it something that applies for your everyday living in the generation we're living in now and, and making that personal application? How do we live this out? How does that truth, which may be an age-old truth, apply to us in the present day? And how can we carry those things out? And Just great, great insight here. I want to encourage you, if you have a heart to teach the Bible, familiarize yourself with verse 8 and use that. It's very simplistic. Again, it's not complicated. It wasn't about, you know, how great was the presentation. It wasn't about, you know, how charismatic is the individual presenting it. It wasn't about, hey, who are the people who can really be movers and shakers? We're going to read the Bible for six hours. We need to keep the people's attention, keep them captivated. So who's the most captivating personality? It was simply about reading God's Word, explaining God's Word, and then making personal application of God's Word to the people so that they could take it, live it out in their everyday lives in submission to the truth and the authority of what God was saying to them through it. And you know what? That done under the spiritual anointing of the Holy Spirit 
will have its impact. Understanding, you know, Ezra understood, look, these people have a spiritual hunger. I don't need to put on a show and a dance and get a pony show up here to keep them attentive. He believed they were they were wanting to hear. There was a general sense of that they wanted to hear God's word. They wanted to hear what the scripture said. And how wonderful the simplicity that's there. It's a great explanation of just what expository Bible teaching is. Reading a passage, explaining it, and applying it, and just doing that. That's why we teach the way that we do, expositionally through full books of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, and ultimately from the beginning of Genesis through the entire Bible, ultimately covering all the way through Revelation, because people need to know the Word of God in its context and its proper understanding and how it applies, and that it's all inspired and profitable for them, every portion of it. And and again, very different teaching from the Bible, that is reading some scripture and saying some things and then kind of talking about whatever, very different than teaching from the Bible is actually teaching the Bible and actually teaching what the Bible says, unpacking and unfolding what's there, going through every portion, giving people a well-balanced diet of all of scripture. That's so important. We want to do that. Certainly a topical message here and there has its place and setting, and there are times for that. And when the Spirit leads, we should do that. But I think ultimately one of the greatest needs of God's people is good, healthy spiritual nourishment so that they are not illiterate in the Word of God, but they know the Scripture well because then when the spiritual teacher or pastor or person isn't with them and they need some guidance as they become very familiar with their Bible because they've been learning their whole Bible— they can learn how to feed and nourish themselves by going to passages of Scripture and reading them and finding answers and counsel and guidance because they become more familiar with the Word of God in its entirety because they've been taught through the entirety of Scripture. That's why we do what we do. We do it because we see the value of it and even the scriptural precedent and example. So verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people— said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So notice now we're beginning to see the response of the people to the word of God. As they hear the word of God, as they're being taught the word of God, as the Holy Spirit's anointing is upon the reading and teaching of God's word going forth, notice the people are having a very deep response to the word. It says that as they were hearing the word of God, they began to mourn and weep. It says the people wept, verse 9, when they heard the words of the law. That is, they're experiencing spiritual conviction. They're realizing there are areas in our lives that do not align with what God's word says. There are things in our life that are out of place and aren't obedient to what the truth of God's word says, and they were grieved. The spirit of God was convicting them. Remember in the book of Acts, it says when Peter preached that day under the inspiration of the Spirit, it says the people were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? They wanted to know, how do we respond? Again, there was this responsiveness to the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit's moving, this is what we believe we should be seeing. People being attentive to want to hear, and then responsive to what they're hearing. Even at times, there's a time and a place where there should be deep conviction, sadness, grief, in our heart that we are not living consistent with God's word. The people were were weeping when they realized their lives were in some ways not lining up with what God's word says. They were convicted 
of sin. And verse 10 says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, that is, take care of those who are in need. It's one of the things God's called them to do and instructed them in his word, to be, in a sense, other-centered, to look for those who have need and to assist. He says, Don't sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, responsively, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood, notice, because they understood God's word, it says, that were being declared to them. So again, verse 12, because they understood what God's word said, they were able to respond rightly in their lives in how they lived out their experience after hearing the scripture. They were able to put it into practice and be doers of the word. So the people are hearing, they're grieving, they're saddened as they realize some things are out of alignment. And rather than heaping condemnation on the people or making them feel worse, it says here that Ezra, the priest, and the Levites who were teaching the people, they let them feel conviction, but then they they helped them to know how to correct their course, and to do what was right. They said, look, don't be stricken by grief and live in condemnation and self-pity. It's okay to be convicted, but just make adjustments. God will give you the power to correct and to change things. And God's word, as you understand it, will show you the right way to live. Begin to take care of those around you who need assistance in the society. And he says, and don't sorrow. He says, for this is a sacred day of worship. Again, these were the times of of great religious and spiritual celebration, the seventh month for the Jews. I like how he says there in verse 10, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God doesn't want you to be miserable and grief-stricken. He wants you to experience inward joy, and there is no greater joy than when you live in accordance with the word of God. And as you choose to do what God's word says, it brings great internal joy, an inward sense of contentment and rejoicing because you know you're doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. And he says, the joy of the Lord, as you're becoming joyful because you're doing what God wants, he says, that will strengthen you. It'll empower you. It'll be where your strength comes from. There's no greater strength and empowering thing, I think, than knowing, hey, I am doing what the word of God says. I'm doing what God said is right. And there's something about that that really strengthens a person inwardly, nothing that's more draining than when you do the opposite, than when you're living disobedient to God's word. But when you obey God's word and feel that joy of what you're doing, he says, that joy of the Lord, that'll be your strength. So they said, be still. This is a, a holy day. Don't be grieved. Celebrate and, and, and do what's right. And the people were rejoicing greatly, verse 12 says, because they understood the words being declared to them. Now, here we see their response again, verse 13. Now, on the second day, the heads of the fathers, houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand, notice this constant repetition, the words of the law. So notice verse 13 indicates that the next day, after this hours and hours of Bible reading and explanation, the next day it says the heads of the fathers' houses. That implies the the male leaders, in the homes, among the tribes, among the clans, the male leaders, the heads of the father's houses, they regathered for further instruction in the word of God. They came to get, it says, greater understanding of the words of the law. I like this. 
Here are the men, the spiritual leaders, and they understand, look, in order for us to now lead our families, we need to have greater understanding of the Word of God ourselves to be able to guide our families spiritually. And I like to see this. I like how the men are taking the initiative to return back, saying, teach us more. If anyone needs to know God's word and learn God's word, the men, the leaders are saying, we need to know. As husbands, as fathers, we need to know the word of God well. Look, I want to encourage the men, take this spiritual initiative. If anybody needs to be learning and knowing God's word well, it is us as men, as husbands, as fathers. We are spiritual leaders and if at times, I think even as families, you know, I, I think of early days when, you know, Trisha and I were married and the kids were young and all that kind of stuff. And there were challenges sometimes, uh, certainly we, we always kind of recognize that, you know, that precedence is that I needed to continue to make sure I kept seeking the Lord on behalf of the family. And if one of us could get to the church, a lot of times the way that we address that is, is I would make sure I got to church. If somebody had to stay home with the kids being sick, it wasn't a matter of that I didn't didn't want my wife being ministered to, but it was the thing of as the head of the home, I need to go be strengthened, encouraged, taught spiritually so that I can be a good, effective spiritual leader for my family. We made sure that if there were opportunities, men's retreats, things like this, again, that, that I was making sure I was taking the priority to be seeking the Lord, going that extra step, making sure I was investing in my spiritual life so that I could lead my family and help us spiritually stay on track as a family with good decisions and seeking the Lord, and that I could minister to my wife and lead and direct my wife and children spiritually. So I, I like this. You know, I think as men, we need to be willing to go the extra mile, to take the extra step, to make the extra investments, to worship and study and learn God's Word. Very, very important thing. I know we can be busy, but uh, may, things we do never take precedence over us investing in our spiritual lives to be good spiritual heads of our households. There's going to be much greater impact if we're strong in the Lord for our whole families. And look what happens. Verse 14 is the men came together as spiritual leaders. It says, as they gathered to understand more of God's word, verse 14, they found written in the law, notice, found, that speaks of discovery. And when you get into God's word, you start discovering things. You discover maybe what you didn't know before, or you discover things about God, or you discover what you should be doing that maybe you haven't been doing. Here they found, written in the law, what the Lord had commanded Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, reference to the feast of tabernacles, and that they should announce, verse 15, and proclaim for all their cities in their Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain, bring olive branches, Bring branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths, that is little shelters, tent-like shelters of the branches, as it is written in God's word. And then, verse 16, the people, notice, they obeyed what they discovered written in the word of God regarding celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The people went out and they brought them and they made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house. Now that's because they had flat roofs. Don't try this on your traditional roofs in America. They had flat roofs. They made these little booth shelters on their roofs, some of them. Also in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God, in the open square and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. 
So the whole assembly, verse 17, of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not done so. The idea is celebrated in this way with so much enthusiasm and the whole nation doing this obediently as the Spirit was moving them to realign their lives with God's word. It says, verse 17, and there was great gladness. So what we have described here in verses 14 through 17 is the people observing the Feast of Tabernacles. This, again, essential, required Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, remember, celebrated the faithfulness of God to preserve the children of Israel as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And though they lived wandering through the wilderness because of their disobedience for 40 years, God preserved them with a pillar of cloud by day to protect the sun, the pillar of beating on them, the pillar of fire by night to keep them warm in the cold of the night hours. And it says that their shoes never wore out. Remember, God gave them manna from heaven and the Lord preserved them as they lived, in a sense, in the open wilderness and took care of them because of his great faithfulness. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. They would move outside for a week-long feast celebration, and they would create these little temporary shelters with branches, little booths and shelters, and they would live inside of these for a week-long period as families, and as they would lay there at night, it created an opportunity to connect with their ancient forefathers and what God did for them and how God was a God who changes not. As they would lay there, no doubt the children would inquire, Father, why are we laying out here and living in this shelter and, and, and looking up at the stars? And the fathers would be able to explain, because, son, because for 40 years God faithfully took care of our forefathers. For 40 years, they wandered in a wilderness where they could have died and never survived, and yet God kept miraculously taking care of them, providing for them every day miraculously, keeping them safe from things that could have destroyed them. And God never let them down, and he kept being faithful. And it was a way to kind of connect. Again, goes to show you, even God himself seems to kind of be in hands-on learning and, and, and kind of a, a craft, if you would. He was letting them live outside and have an object lesson of God's faithfulness preserving them. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. And the people were doing this, and it was bringing great gladness as they were obeying God again. Our final verse, verse 18, says, And also day by day, I have that circle, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast for seven days. And then on the eighth day, there was the sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So for the duration of that whole week, day by day, it says, Ezra kept reading huge portions of the word of God. It was a week-long spiritual celebration as people were being encouraged focusing God on God. I mean, this was like an extended like an extended retreat weekend of just worship and hearing Scripture and fellowship, God's people being together with their attention on the Lord, not focused on their everyday affairs, but just focused on God, fellowshipping in the Lord, hearing His Word spoken to them in this beautiful, beautiful thing that was going on. What a beautiful picture here in God's word of what happens when his spirit begins to move among his people. May we pray together for such a move of God's spirit to come amongst us once again, that perhaps even in this unique time of separation and physical separation, that we would long 
for a move of God's Spirit when he brings us back together again that would bring fresh passion for the things of God and the things of his Spirit. Would you pray with me?